When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Here in corporeal form, singing in the faces of only a handful of dedicated Vanity Project attendees today. And I know it must seem strange for me to emerge as if I am Celine Dion, but I always tell people um, that excellence begins with delusion. And so that is the spirit in which I come out to you all. And um, thank you all for being here. I have a podcast, along with most of the Western Hemisphere. And... Um, <laughs> And in my podcast, we've had some interesting conversations over the course of the time since it started. We've had people like Lorraine Kelly come on as guests. We've had a couple of MPs from the Labour Party. Um, we've had activist Peter Tatchell and a whole host of other individuals. Now, here at the Edinburgh Fringe, you'll know that the majority of the people performing are comedians. And so I thought I'd take the opportunity to bring my podcast to Edinburgh so I get to sit down with them. Today is no different. We have two comedians, but also two avid and popular podcasters. So without further ado, I'm going to introduce them to the stage. They are Constantin Kissin and Francis Foster of Trigonometry. <laughs> hello, hello. Fantastic. Yes, do come in, get comfortable. And what song are you going to sing, Francis? Uh, I'm going to sing... Um, I look Ice forward Ice, to this. Yes, Ice Ice Baby by Vanilla Ice. Oh, good choice. What would you be singing, Constantine? Nothing. Nothing. <laughs> You'd have to mime or maybe erotic striptease. We'll choose one of those as yeah. we go. He will striptease, whether it's erotic or not, is yeah. another matter entirely. <laughs> that is entirely subjective. Maybe Maybe erotic for me, not so much for the audience. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Well, thank you so much for being here. I know that you've been up here in Edinburgh doing a few of your own live recordings Mm -hmm. of trigonometry, but for anybody in the audience or for anybody listening at home, they might not understand what your podcast specifically is. You are two funny men. You are both comedians, but you've also got a sort of cultural, political bent to the Mm. podcast too. Mm -hmm. So maybe tell us a bit about what it's about. Well, uh, Trigonometry is a podcast, or a YouTube show rather, and a podcast where we interview people from across the political spectrum talking about what is happening in the world, both politically, economically, culturally, because what we believe is what we're being fed in the mainstream media isn't exactly what is happening in the world. It's not being, they're not being honest. We know, we've known that and we've been aware of it for a long time. And what we're trying to do is bring people to the fore who've got something interesting, something different to say, who may be able to illuminate and may be able to guide you in a different way, to look at the world in a different way. We're not here to lecture. We're not here to talk down to you. That is not our jobs. We're just there to facilitate a conversation. I mean, if we were here to lecture, we're doing a terrible job, aren't we? (laughs) Um, uh, But no, it uh, it also, I mean, I think it's fair to say that we are sort of countercultural. We Mm -hmm. try to push back against some of the things that we see happening that we don't like. Uh, I've just had a book out called An Immigrant's Love Letter to the West because I think... Uh, we've got to a point where we denigrate ourselves too much. Uh, and I think that's a really important part of what we do as well, to try and kind of remind people of how fortunate we are to be living in the West in the 21st century as well. And there's a little bit of humour in there as well, so it's not all just... You know, the, most the, of it is. Most of it is, you know. But there's also a little bit of humour to sugar the pill, shall we say. So people seem to enjoy it. Uh, we've, we've had many Scottish... Some people. Some people seem to... Uh, there, there are people in the comedy industry who really dislike us, and that makes us incredibly happy. Yes. Fuck them. Can we swear? Well, I just did. Too anyway. late. I had a, two of my guests yesterday were two lovely female comedians. Mm-hmm. I said, well, they were comedians. They happened to be female. Diane Spencer and Alison June Smith. And uh, one thing I picked up from them is that the comedy world is quite 
catty. Um, you know, there's a lot of cutting people off at the knees or a lot of sort of uh, the weight of criticism seems to weigh heavily on comedians from other comedians. Mm. Um, is that what you're alluding yes. to Yes, well, that's kind of the genesis of our show because um, one of the things we found is uh, we were interested in speaking to people who had a different opinions. So, for example, we are two people who voted Remain in 2016. Because we're good people. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Uh, and what, but what we did find also, there was this strange narrative, certainly to me, dark-skinned first-generation immigrant. Immediately, the, the moment the vote came out, I was like, everyone who voted for Brexit is a massive racist. And I doesn't really match my experience of this yeah. country, particularly. So, and Francis, you know, he has his own story, which I'm sure he'll, he'll tell you, because he always does. Yeah, that's, I'll uh, bang on about it. My mother is... Uh, I wait, I know about this. Your mother is from Venezuela. She is indeed. She See, is, I know something here. She is, a, she is Latinx, is how she <laughs> likes to be identified. <laughs> uh, she really hates that term, by the way, as do most Latino people who are culturally conservative and religious. Anyway, uh, so, yeah, so she came to this country in the 70s, dark-skinned, first-generation immigrant, married my father, who is uh, from Irish Catholic stock, uh, and I was, I was brought up. My dad voted Brexit, my mum voted Brexit. Uh, like I said, I voted Remain. And when they said that all these people who voted for Brexit were racist, my father, who is one of the kindest, most generous, sweetest, married a woman of colour in the 70s when it wasn't cool, wasn't, it was, you didn't put a hashtag on it and everybody went, yes, queen, and all the rest of it. Um, yeah, so, uh, and just one of the most principled people I ever met, to see him denigrated and to see him smeared as racist really uh, boiled my piss, to put it mildly. Yeah, so coming back to the point that I was making, we started by talking to people who had a different opinion to us about political issues, cultural issues, about comedy, and we immediately, two people who were of the left, trying to have conversations with people from different perspectives. The comedy industry immediately decided that we were evil, right-wing, etc. Uh, which is one of the reasons we take so much pleasure coming to Edinburgh and selling lots of tickets uh, in front of all these left-wing comedians who hate us. Yeah, exactly. Ooh. Keep playing to eight people, guys. Well, uh, is, you've Not chosen a bad gig in which to do that joke, my friend. <laughs> yes, but there are thousands listening digitally. Uh, yes. That's right, indeed they are. Eight people uh, would be quite an achievement at this point. So, Constance, you've mentioned that your book, uh, An Immigrant's mm. Love Letter to the West. West. Um, and now you, so, interesting there, so you're from Russia, mm. um, which is, in my mind, although I am indeed a culturally ignorant individual, um, uh, Russia isn't quite the West, I suppose, then. It's not the Europe. West at all, no. Right. Well, I suppose that some Russians visualize themselves as being somehow partially Western. Maybe not today. Well, I respect their right to, their right to self-identify as right. Western, but I, I, don't, I don't buy that. Okay. Yeah. Uh, no, the Russia isn't the West. The Russia has a very different way of doing things. Uh, I mean, in the context of this conversation, this show happening on stage in Russia unlikely mm. um so it's it's not a, a place that i i mean it, that's not to say by the way people always think that i'm always like slagging off russia russia is a country that's given the world beautiful literature music vodka uh, vod well thank you uh but all sorts of incredible cultural creations it's produced some of the most powerful literature in the history of the world but i don't see it as part of the western project because uh, the way that people think about things there, in, about individual rights, about freedom of speech. The, you know, like I say, this conversation wouldn't be happening in Russia. So one of the things I was very keen to point out from the moment that we started our show, but particularly in my book, is one of the reasons I feel we're incredibly privileged, to use that term, in the West is, for now at least, we still have the opportunity to say what we think and we can disagree with each other and have different opinions. And that is the beauty of the West. And so, you know, one of the reasons I feel very strongly about it is like having come from a country where comedians weren't allowed to make jokes about politicians. Comedians weren't allowed, well, didn't really exist until 1991. There was a brief moment of opportunity during the 90s uh, when people could do that. Uh, we had a show which was the equivalent of Spitting Image. It was called Puppets. Uh, and uh, that was the first time in the history of my country anyone could see the president being made fun of. 
And of course, when Vladimir Putin came to power, he immediately shut it down. So I am quite sensitive about a climate, and certainly this exists in comedy, but I think also more broadly, in which people are increasingly being restricted or at least perceive themselves as being restricted in terms of what they can and can't say, what they can't joke about. And to me, that is anathema. That is not the West. It, it, it's, an, it's an external thing that has come in and is frankly ruining the very values that made the West prosperous, free, successful, etc. I'm deeply concerned about that, which is why I wrote the book. And the, he, my experience of it is in Venezuela in 1999, Hugo Chavez came to power. Uh, Chavez was a communist. He came in, he promised, and always, always be very wary of this, people who promise simple solutions to complex problems. Venezuela was a very divided society. It was, it, it was racist as well. There was a huge inequality between rich and poor. He said communism was going to make everybody equal. And it pretty much did, because we're now we're all fucked. So uh, that's what Chavez yeah, did. Yeah, but you, you lost weight, though, so that's yeah, good. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Yeah, one of my uncles was morbidly obese. He said, I've tried to lose weight for years. I can't do it. This is just my genes. Under communism, he lost weight pretty quickly. Mm. He that's is slim as anything now. Fabulous. Yeah. We should get some communism yeah. here. Yeah. Well, we're trying, so yeah. we're doing our best. <laughs> Trust me, I walk around East London, I'm like, you, mate, could do with a bit of communism. Mm. You know what I mean? You know, I was wondering whether or not the monkeypox epidemic was going to result in dramatic weight loss for any of the people that had it. So I spent much of last weekend lying face down with my ass up in um, <laughs> Hampstead. <laughs> Because it would be wonderful. I've got dresses that are a tiny bit too small for me because they've arrived from the Far East mm. where the sizes are all very confusing. They yeah. definitely don't expect XL to mean this XL. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Um, so you used to be a school teacher. Indeed I did. Um, Constantine, what? And, and Constantine... Oh, we're and fucked, aren't we? <laughs> That's why you're drinking at this time of the day. If there's anything to forget the little wee bastards. Yeah, the wee bastards! Get me a drink. Both of yesterday's guests were both school teachers also, and I'm aware that it seems to be a slight road from teaching, where you're already, you have a captive audience as a teacher, I suppose, yeah, and, and then going into comedy. Absolutely, you've got a captive audience, most of them who don't want to be there. All of them are just sitting there, really waiting for the break so they can go outside and chat to their mates, and they're just there watching the clock. It's pretty much the same thing. Except uh, with uh, comedy, you're getting paid slightly more, so slightly more than fuck all, right. really. And you get to go on the road, right? Yeah, and you get to go on the road, yeah. A and bit then, nomadic. Yes, you have this nomadic existence. But what is happening now is, when I was doing the comedy clubs just before the pandemic uh, arrived to shut everything down, uh, I was talking to a lot of the people who ran the big clubs in London and other places where I was gigging, and they were saying that actually more and more people were complaining about jokes. They were complaining about the, uh, the, about the fact that people were joking about certain subject matters. Again, not the vast majority of people who are decent and you know, respectful, but you know, a very entitled minority who are essentially children. So the, the parallels are their vanity. I have to ask, just looking around the room, has anyone in this room ever complained about a joke? Have you ever like, written Not until today. Or yes. called up? I find that really strange, the idea that you know, like a joke, I understand the intention in which a joke is made. I know there is an argument some people have that jokes are secretly cover for like, being being evil, you know, <laughs> that the evils of the world are going to dress themselves up as stand-up comedians, and that's like how they're going to get by. And I'm always curious, like, who is the person that sends a complaint? I've never known someone who's admitted to it, so maybe it is people, and they just don't tell me. Well, you don't know this vanity. I'm going to give you a little bit of a history lesson. But the first time Hitler tried to take over the world, he tried to do it via the medium of stand-up comedy. <laughs> he would go into open mics, drops a few jokes about the juice. It didn't work. So then he started out with the dick jokes, and bang, in with the Jew stuff. You know what I mean? And Constantine, have you had a past life before comedy? I'm not familiar with you. Yeah, I used to run my own translation. I used to live here, actually, just down the road. I, I lived in a, yeah, I lived in Edinburgh, Edinburgh for seven years. Yes. I, I don't know what the accent that was, sorry. Uh, um, not local. Ter terrible. Um, but yeah, I, I used to live here. I went to Edinburgh University. Uh, I stayed here with my wife, uh, mm. and I ran my own translation business. And then, uh, I, it's funny, I lived here in Edinburgh for seven years, never went to the fringe. Uh, no. You don't do it. Uh, but yeah, and then I ran my own translation business. I worked for big uh, law firms, banks. Uh, I translated a lot of video games as well. I see. And then I got into comedy. I see. And was there anything hilarious about translation? That no. Allowed you in? No. <laughs> Nothing at all. I see. I had no idea that you were here in Edinburgh, and I've met your wife before. She looks like Shakira. Yes. She has a lot of hair. 
Yes. On her head, I mean. I know. Yes. <laughs> Thank you. I remember her being very, very beautiful and thinking she looks like Shakira. There's no, nothing. They don't. About they've it. never seen her, so they, you, you, her, so it's not landing know. that hard with these two. So you don't know. But she's she is she's a beautiful woman. Thank you. Yes. Well, there we are, pertaining to absolutely nothing. Um, so I'm curious, right? So when obviously I I, I expect you and I are in both we're all three of us are in agreement about a lot of things when it comes to comedy. Do you think that comedy should have a social conscience? Because the origins of a complaint is going to be that a joke sort of violates some. Yeah. that affects real world. I actually world. do think comedy should have a social conscience, but not in the way that most people think about that term. To me, a social conscience, to me, the responsibility of comedians, and it's pro probably due to the background I was talking about, is to push back against the mainstream bullshit. Mm. It's to challenge the status quo. That's the point of comedy. When I was growing up, in, you know, when my parents sent me to school here eventually, it was people like George Carlin and Bill, Bill Hicks, people who were questioning the orthodoxy of their time, who I looked up to. And when I got into comedy, I was like, oh, comedy is this great place for people who think differently. <laughs> and then I found out actually it's, probably, it's the most conformist industry I've ever encountered. Mm -hmm. Everyone's supposed to have exactly the same opinion. And the moment, like with me, the moment I start said, well, actually maybe people being able to speak freely is a good thing, you're a Nazi. Jewish Nazi, the best kind. Yeah. Um, so, so that's that. That was that. So, to me, the social conscience of comedy should be to poke, to, to poke holes in the things that we're being told, to question, to go, is that really true? Is or, or maybe is there is there a flaw in this argument that we're all being asked to accept? To me, that is the responsibility of comedians. Now, look, I'm not saying every single comedian must do what what Constantine Kissin says. I just think that's the way I wanted to do comedy, and I'm, I was frustrated, you know, the reason we started Trigonometry, I was frustrated with the fact that that was, you know, you, you play Comedy Unleashed, for example, this comedy right. club in London, which says, you know, people shouldn't restrict themselves and they should speak freely and make their own jokes, and that is perceived as, like, again, this evil thing. Uh, that to me is a problem. I, I, to me, the social conscience of comedy should be to open things up, to open people's eyes to different ways of looking at things. To, and also through that, to actually kind of show each other our humanity. Like, you know, we were talking about Brexit. Well, actually, is it really true that all people who voted Brexit are evil? Maybe we should try and understand where they're coming from and maybe bring each other together rather than this, you know, just, you know, you're this and you're that. That to me is the social a responsibility of comedy that I'd like to see more of, uh, rather than the social responsibilities not to offend. I don't give a fuck if you're offended. It doesn't You have no right not to be offended in a free society. Not only that, the price of living in a free society is that you will be offended, mm -hmm. and it's a price worth paying. I think the social com conscience of comedy is for one thing and one thing only, to be funny. And however you be funny and however you want to be funny, you should be open and free to do that. Whether you want to do, like one of my favourite comedians, like Sean Walsh, do a hilarious routine about toasters or a Michael McIntyre, or if you want to go on and be political and acerbic and left-wing, like, you know, there's a whole host of comedians who Mark do that. Steel, David Man, yeah, Mark Steele, David Baddiel, a bunch you know, of them. Yeah, I didn't want to say Frankie Boyle because he's a prick. Um, <laughs> Or Leo Kurz, who's on the right, who's on the right. But what I don't want to see is people, and what I think is happening more and more, which is people kind of, and the BBC using comedy as a way to hijack comedy, and just as a way for people to deliver badly constructed jokes, which aren't even jokes, but just a way to basically force their opinion down someone's throat. And look, you can do opinionated comedy, and some of the, my favourite comedians do routines, and I think that's the best type of comedy for me, where they actually do routines, and I don't agree with them politically or what they're saying, but they still make me laugh anyway because the joke is so beautifully constructed. But what we see more and more on TV now, and this was from an example from a few years ago, where people go off and slag off Brexit, which again, fine, that's your opinion, do what you want, but you, you sit there as an audience member and go, all right, mate, this is brilliant, but what about the joke? Because mm. that's mm. the important mm. thing. It's not the subject, it's the joke. 
And and by the way, you could say, you know, where two people are complaining about it. Like I used to write on the MASH report. Francis used to write on Mock the Week, which is why it's been cancelled. Yeah, exactly. Because um, <laughs> I don't like truth. <laughs> no, like we are very, we have a very successful YouTube show. Uh, we're very happy with our lives. Our lives are brilliant. I am not here to complain about the BBC not giving opportunities or whatever. Like I don't give a shit. We look forward to them going bust. Yeah, we do. But... Which they will, but but the point is, like, look at Mock the Week has just been cancelled, and we've been saying this for ages. If you carry on down this path, if you carry on down the path of bringing younger and younger people who are trying to entertain an audience who are in their eighties, which is the BBC audience, you are not you're not trying to satisfy your audience. You're trying to satisfy your own prejudices about how comedy should be. Right. Uh, and too much of it is also became, in my, in my time, about diversity. It's like, I, I, I actually don't really give a shit about diversity. I think people should be promoted on merit and merit alone. I don't care if you're a dark-skinned immigrant like me or if you're a straight white man. You know, this is one of the things that happened in comedy during my lifetime. Is like there was this thing that we have to have a certain number of these people or these people or these people. And what they forgot is you can have people who are black and brown and white and male and female who all say the same boring shit, mm. right? Why don't we have people who have different views, different opinion, different styles of comedy, you know? all doing things together. That, to me, was the beauty of it. That's why I love, used to love walking into a green room where you've got people with different, you know, and there was debate and conversation. That's what I used to enjoy. Mm. Backstage almost as much as being on stage. And I think the proof of what we've been saying is in the fact that, you know, Mock the Week is over. Live of the Apollo is next. That's going to get cancelled very soon as well. Uh, MASH Report's already been cancelled as well. And that's because you're serving up this boring crap that nobody actually wants to see. You know, and that's why the internet is where all the creative people are going. It's what, what, that's why the people who are exciting, the people who are building stuff, the people who are trying to do new things are on there because that's where you're actually free for the moment. And also as well, I always used to say to people when they were bang on about diversity targets, I'd be like, what about me? Right, racist voice, that had started off. <laughs> and then they'd look at me and go, well, you're, a white, well, you're just a straight white man. I go, actually, my grandfather was from Lebanon in the Middle East. My grandmother was part South American Indian. Uh, part, just a hodgepodge of different places, moved to Venezuela. My first language growing up was Spanish. My mother is, a, is dark skinned. So what about me? And they go, yeah, but you're white. Okay, which I took after my dad's Irish roots, which I just came along and basically bleached everything. But here's the thing, at what point, I'd say to him, along the Dulux color chart, do I suddenly become mixed race? Because if you look at me genetically, I am mixed race. But because I don't present as that, suddenly you put me into the category of white. So how does it work? And then I never gigged at that club again. <laughs> <laughs> well, I had the same thing. I had a, I had a, a, a time when I was, I was due to do a show uh, and uh, I got an email uh, from the promoter saying, we've got too many straight white men on the bill, so we have to reschedule you. That was the day in which someone in the street called me a packy. You know what I mean? Like, how does that, I'll how does that work? I've mate, how you, many times? Yeah, well, you know, I've got to, <laughs> still going to bring it up, mate. There is certainly a scattergun approach to racism, isn't yes. there? <laughs> so, you know? so all of, it's just, it, it really annoyed me, and it was all a, a bunch of nonsense. A big man is walking over to us. Are we cancelled? No. He's just forgotten to put the little clock that, what, The what little is cock? It? Is there a little cock? Oh, okay, but it's not over there. I usually have a little clock so I can mentally segment the conversation. Oh, right. oh okay. And I'm, I'm all, so in my mind, I'm always like, so we'll have 15 minutes in a certain area and we'll have 15 minutes in a certain <laughs> area. Yeah. Well, no, it, shh. No, it, it, everything you're saying is very interesting, but um, I, I was feeling a rising anxiety in my, in my yes. heart. I also am aware that you've got to disappear off, so I can't run over today. Yeah. Um, but then we've got loads of time to continue our conversation. In that case, let me finish my point. <laughs> yeah. uh, no, what I was going to say is this. There's an American philosopher, Eric Hoffer, who said that every great cause begins in the mo as a movement, becomes a business, and eventually degenerates into a racket. And that's what I think has happened. Like, I think initially the idea that we need to open up opportunities for women or people from minority backgrounds actually was true. Like if you went into the BBC in the 90s and 80s and 90s, you know, the, the only black people you'd see would be in the cafeteria. You know what I mean? So that was necessary, but we've got to a point where we've got way beyond the idea that people should be given opportunities based on merit. And it, was, it became a racket. Uh, that people actually profited from, mostly not actually the people who were being promoted. Because 
you know, you know this, like if you're doing any creative art form, it takes some time to get good, right? And if you're pushing people too far, too fast, you end up, this is why female comedians would often complain because they'll be like, I walk on stage and everyone's like, oh, she's going to be shit. Well, if you keep putting people on TV who are not ready yet, that is w the perception that some people will mm -hmm. form. So it can be even counterproductive sometimes. So that is one of the other things that I was quite keen to push back on. Because I'm an immigrant, I'm allowed to do this. Uh, the, the two ladies in the room looked at each other and nodded. Nodded appreciatively. I'm fucking right. Yeah, and it, uh, Cancel female, no. <laughs> <laughs> but it's it's also the way as well like you know in it and it breeds an orthodoxy amongst people who are minorities in comedy whereby you have the liberal mainstream and you are dictated you are dictated to what you can and can't say because you know if you go along certain paths or you've got touched on certain topics you won't be booked for certain shows that's it. Now, you can get up and say it in particular clubs or whatever else, and if you're skillful enough, most of the time you'll be able to find a way around it. But you certainly won't get on at the BBC, etc., etc. I remember uh, my girlfriend, who is very smart, very intelligent, very funny, was thinking about actually doing, getting into comedy. Does she look like Shakira? Sorry. <laughs> Uh, more so than my wife, yeah. actually. Oh, no. <laughs> Brilliant. She is, she is Puerto Rican heritage. She's a Latina lady, so she has a temper to match. Let's just leave it at that. Uh, but And then she went to watch a, um, a, uh, a, a, a comedy night, and, I, and she came back, and I went, how was it, my love? And she went, it was boring. I went, what do you mean? She went, it was boring. No one was talking because she loves Carlin Hicks, all these people. And, she, and Joan Rivers is her absolute favorite comedian. I went, well, what do you mean? She was, she was like, well, nobody was saying anything interesting. Nobody was challenging. Nobody was trying to push the boundaries. Nobody was even getting close to the boundaries. I said, my darling, it is not their fault. That is a system that they operate in because they know that if you get too close to a particular edge, you're gonna, it's, it's not gonna work for you. And the greatest form of censorship, as we know, is self-censorship. That is the real toxic form of censorship because when you have that thought and as a comedian or as a performer, you're sitting down and you've got your book in front of you and you're going to write something, you thought, no, I better not go there. And that is what, you know, that's what we're trying to fight against because that doesn't create great art, that doesn't create great comedy and we need to push back against it and we need to talk about it because it's only by talking about it can we actually break free from this orthodoxy. Don, Don French said um, in an interview I watched many years ago um, that I think this was during the sort of Russell Brand peak of, of the celebrity, you know that when the comedians would do arena tours for the first sort of time mm -hmm. in those mid, early mid 2000s. And she said that when she started doing comedy in the 80s, being a comedian was seen as being a, a kind of rogue. Mm -hmm. If you told people you were a comedian, they would love the show you just did, but then kind of think you're a wanker off stage because they're like, oh yeah, here's the comedian. Mm -hmm. You know, and it was this, it wasn't a high status thing to have been socially, mm. but that suddenly, you know, I think the, the comedians in the late 90s started to fill arenas and started to behave like rock stars. And that I always think was sort of exemplified best with Russell Brand, who was essentially a rock star. And as soon as you, uh, as soon as being a comedian has this high status glow around it, it starts to attract people whose main goal isn't necessarily to be funny. Their main goal is to be a rock star in the same way that there are people who would go on the X Factor, you know, who know nothing about music, but they can kind of sing and they want to be a pop star. It's not about music, it's about stardom. Mm. People like us. <laughs> <laughs> Very possibly. But, but, you, but, but you say, like, rock star. I think that's even too high a goal for some of these people. I think they just want to be famous or they want to be TV presenters. And I'm going to be honest with you, there's nothing wrong with that. There's nothing wrong with somebody using stand-up as a stepping stone to something else. A lot of people have done that. A lot of people have then, either here in America, have go, then gone and used it to become script writers, script editors. They go into writing rooms. They, be write, they become novelists, or in the case of Patrick Marber, they become international world-famous playwrights. There's nothing wrong with that in the slightest. The problem is, is when you have an orthodoxy which is imposed top-down, which, look, we are in the Edinburgh Festival. In 2018, Nika Burns said she was looking forward... Tell them who she is. Yeah, so yeah, she is a person who, who is ahead of the Comedy Awards. She is a person who decides, essentially, she's one of the biggest gatekeepers in the industry, and she decides 
whose show is successful and whose show isn't, whose show is going to become to prominence nationally, who's good, all of these th things, right? And she said that she was looking forward to the next generation of woke comedians deciding what is and what isn't acceptable on stage. The head of the Edinburgh Festival, the Edinburgh Comedy Awards. And if that being the case, it doesn't matter how good your comedy is. If it's, if it's transgressive, you ain't gonna get a look in. And that is the problem. <laughs> we need to break free of that and thank the Lord for the internet where you can do that. You mm. don't have to adhere to these orthodoxies. You can go and mm. to do the comedy that you feel is funny, that you feel is brilliant. Do you Bill think it's a good thing that, because uh, it amazes me now that if I want to laugh, you know, I could be on the bus, I could be just anywhere. If I want to laugh, I can take out my phone and just laugh on demand. And I don't think that's ever been possible in human history that yeah. I know I could go to TikTok to watch, um, you know, a fat lady fall down the stairs or Always a man funny. fall off his ladder Always painting funny. his roof. It is. Like it's still funny in real life, though, you've got to yeah, admit. Yeah. Oh, that, that yeah. I often linger at the top of staircases. <laughs> <laughs> and, and so th th we can do this. I mean, think if you weren't a funny person a <laughs> hundred years ago and you lived away out in some little village and there was nobody else funny. I mean, I'm sure, it, I'm sure there, there must always be somebody funny around, but how, how you can just laugh on demand. So now that we have this ability, I feel like it's a good thing, but it also means that kind of everybody's a comedian. There's almost genres in which laughter can be generated that aren't, you know, conventional. Yeah, it's well, that's one, one of the reasons the internet has taken over. But I still do think, like, what we're doing here, sitting down together and talking face-to-face, -face, is still better. There's still this... Not better. It's different and part of what people also want to enjoy. So there are people who will happily watch our show on the internet, but they'll come out and spend money and travel to Edinburgh to see a show because they want to laugh in person with other people who enjoy the same type of comedy. They want to meet us. Like All of that stuff is, is still there. And, you know, it, it sounds like we're complaining about stuff and whatever. Like, I really am not that bothered about it. We've kind of got past all this stuff in, our, in, in terms of what we do. I just, I, just, I just think that people should, there should be more difference. I like real diversity. I like different people doing different things so you can go and see a show by a left-wing comedian or a right-wing or, or a show by a comedian who's not political. And, and all of that should be fairly treated by the powers that be. When I did my last show here as a stand-up in 2019, I, uh, the show, I, you know, I'm not saying I deserved an award because whatever, I don't care. Sounds like you were saying that. But what, uh, another comedian, I, I went out for, for a drink with two comedians who we both know, uh, Dominic Frisbee and Simon Evans. Both very good. Simon Evans, one of my absolute favorite comedians yeah. ever. And Dominic was like, oh, your show is great. Uh, you, you're probably going to get nominated for an award. And Simon looked at him and went, He's lucky if he's not assassinated. <laughs> and what, why? Because I did a show in which I said, actually, maybe we should not arrest people for jokes they make online, and we should allow people to speak freely and make the jokes that they want. That is considered countercultural, and that was never going to get near any awards. I don't care about the, me personally. I just think that reflects an industry that is corrupted, and it, it happens in all industries. Once an industry has become embedded, once people have power, power corrupts and it happens over time and that's why again we're so grateful for the power of the internet because on the internet it's a meritocracy mm. you want to put shared content out no one's going to watch it you were you, you were once um i remember you were going to you were invited to perform at a university and yes. perhaps you can tell everybody what the university asked of you yeah well that was actually what my show was about so at the very end of 2018 uh, I, I was performing a gig at Top Secret, one of London's best comedy clubs, and some students saw me, they liked my show, my set, and they invited me to perform at the university for, to raise money for charity. Basically, they asked me to donate my time to help them raise money. Uh, and then a few weeks later, I got an email in which they had a contract, it was called a behavioral agreement form, which said that they had a zero tolerance policy on racism, sexism, classism, ageism, ableism, homophobia, biphobia, transphobia, xenophobia, Islamophobia, anti-religion, anti-atheism, and it also said that all jokes must be respectful and kind. <laughs> uh. Uh, and yeah, uh, so and when I turned it down, it became quite a big story, which was f interesting to me and actually very illuminating to me because I always say this, uh, this happened, it was the second most read story on the BBC News website on the day that Theresa May, the then Prime Minister, was nearly removed from office by her own party. 
And the second story on the BBC News website was no-name comedian turns down unpaid gig from two-bit college. That's what happened, right? That's when I realized it wasn't just weirdos like the three of us. There was an actual concern out there with the public that they feel restricted about you know, what they can say at work or can you express this opinion or do you have to publicly believe one thing and privately, but you see what I'm saying? Yeah. And that was quite eye-opening to me because I thought it's not just us, there's actually quite a lot of people who are concerned about this stuff. And then of course, you know, trigonometry has you know, probably 600,000 or more subscribers if you take it across different platforms. There's a lot of people that care about this stuff. You know? There's a lot of people that feel passionately about the, these issues. And I think that's because we've become a more restrictive society. We've become comfortable. And it's, it's frustrating. To, I always find it frustrating that like, when, when people want to limit what you laugh about, like laughter is literally a bodily function. Mm, Do you yeah. know what I mean? It's such a strange, it's actually an attempt to mi micromanage something that is, aside from being a social experience, it's like a profoundly natural experience. Mm. You know, and I always find there's such an arrogant overreach to people that try and tell you what you can laugh about. I'm like, it's fucking who. And if it's funny, it's funny. Like, I literally cannot help. And that's why we laugh when the person falls down the stairs. As, you know, we don't want them to break their neck. But just a leg. It, is it, yeah, yeah, just to be partially maimed. <laughs> <laughs> but but I, th I think it goes, and I take on board your point, and I agree with it, but I, I think it goes far deeper than that. The human condition is a realization that we're all mortal, we're all fragile, we're all feeble. That the, we don't know how long we have, but and and as a result of that, life is scary. It's tough. It's difficult. We all have our own challenges, and laughter is such a blessed relief from the vicissitudes of life. It's that moment where we feel relief, and the moment we see a problem, however terrible it is, if we laugh at it, we suddenly it suddenly becomes. Less, less toxic, it becomes less dangerous. It be we humanize it and we're able to then bond together. Mm, yeah. You, yeah. And that's why you see the people who've got the darkest, most fucked up oh, yeah. sense of humor. It's the medics, you know, it's the teachers, it's the firefighters, because yeah. they're at the real cold face of society. They see the problems that's in what, society. That's what um, one of my favorite, this is literally a motto in my life. Liza Minnelli was asked, like, you know, what was the best advice your mother gave you? What did Judy Garland tell Liza Minnelli? Because uh, I'm fascinated to know. And she said, life's not going to be easy. Mm. No. But have a laugh! <laughs> you know? Yeah. And literally, I mean, it's the antidote. It doesn't solve the problem, but it <laughs> I'd rather be laughing It's a coping about the mechanism, right? Than miserable, yeah. you know? Yeah. The antidote to misery. Misery being the, the, the sort of the sullen acceptance of the sadness rather than... Yeah, absolutely. And I also think, certainly with our show, because we do interviews with serious people, who've, who've, sometimes people who've been through things, or sometimes people who, who have a political point of view or whatever, the, the, the shutting down of different opinions, it also means that certain issues can't be properly talked about. You know, Francis and I talk about this all the time. You know, he talks about, as a teacher, one of the things he always noticed is that the kids who are really struggling in school are often kids who don't have two parents. They yeah. don't come from an intact family. But you can't say that. You can't mm. say that on TV. You can't say that in public, because because then you're stigmatizing. Sing no, you're not. You're just observing reality and saying maybe we should pay attention to this thing that's affecting children who are suffering as a result. But no, because you have to have the right opinion, and because we've created a culture where you can't speak the truth. Well, yeah, fuck the children. Let's have the right opinion. Mm -hmm. That's how we do it now. Yeah, and that does that make sense to you guys? Yeah, hundred yeah. percent. So, which is an agreement. Hundred. Yeah. So the we full lot. we had a, a one of the most profound points I ever heard on on our show was from a journalist called Ed West. He went, the reason you need freedom of speech and people to be able to talk openly because if you don't talk openly about a problem, you're never going to be able to solve it because you're not going to fully understand it. And if we can't have free and open discussions with taboo subjects, they will always remain taboo and they will always remain problems. So what has happened in, in, in England is, so we've got these problems with kids and they grow up in the most terrible circumstances. They don't have, and the dad isn't around, mum's doing her best, but she's working three or four jobs, particularly in somewhere like London. You know, kid doesn't have any direction. And then so what they say is, right, well, the school needs to do everything. The school, the teacher. And you go, the school and the teacher can He's cannot. playing to the audience here, isn't he? Yes, yes, <laughs> yeah, fucking yes. Yeah, raise our wages as well. And you just go, but that is never going to be a solution. 
It can't because the school and the teacher can never replace the role of parent and family. It doesn't matter how much money you put in, it will never be able to do that. And we're not being honest about a very serious problem that is affecting the next generation. Mm. Well, that is indeed Francis's view. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> Strongly put, well put. Yeah. I'm curious, because I was thinking about, um, uh, I thought it'd be interesting to, add, to put this to you guys. Um, you know, the sort of complainer, the, the, the person that complains, whoever that is. I feel like for the past six, seven years, we've really been aware of the 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 scolds being the people kind of from the progressive trendy left they're the ones telling people um you shouldn't say that whereas of course back in like the uh, 70s it was the other way around it was you know the permissive society was being criticized by the likes of mary whitehouse and all that yeah now at the moment uh, it's fresh in my mind because i was just doing an interview about it yesterday about this drag queen story time thing right yes now i do not read stories to children I, uh, two ch- children came up to me earlier when I was doing flyers for the show and their mother encouraged them to come up and talk to me. And they went, I really like your dress. And I just went, well, you can't have it and turned away. <laughs> like, I'm not, I'm not interested in that. But there are drag queen story times happening and I'm noticing there's quite a strong, and I would say snowballing pushback against that. I think I'm right in saying that you've touched on this. I watched your interview with Andrew Sullivan, yes. who is a gay journalist yes. based in Provincetown in America. And so I was kind of, and he's surrounded by drag queens in Provincetown. They're literally everywhere um, near Boston. And um, so I was just curious about that because it seems to me like maybe the pendulum's swinging the other way now again, because there's a lot of complaint about that yes. coming. And maybe you could talk about what you think well, those concerns Well, actually, are. I think this is a really important point, Vanity, and it ties very much with what Francis said, which is one of the things that's happening now, if you look at young people, their acceptance of the LGBT community is actually going down. Yeah. And that's because as you push some things that are extreme and as you normalize things that shouldn't be happening, everyone is gets tarred with the same brush and people start assuming that, you know, the people who advocate to, for transitioning children at 12 because they just said, oh, I feel like a girl today or whatever, they think that's the LGBT community when frankly it mostly isn't. Mm-hmm. And actually most of the pushback against some of the excesses of, for example, transgender ideologies coming from within the LGBT community, the gays, the lesbians, etc. But the problem is that people will throw the baby out with the bathwater. They absolutely will. And an extreme right-wing backlash is a very natural, unwelcome response to the advancing progressive ideology way beyond its remit. So if, if we as a society don't restrict that part of it and keep it, you know, to what, you know, Whatever your view, whatever you want to do, the sexualization of children is wrong, right? right. I think that the, the question here is that I think that some people have the misapprehension yes. that a drag queen's performance in front of kids must be sexu- sexual innuendo laden per se. Now, I understand why some people who the last drag they saw was Lily Savage in 1998, or, or, or even if they watch Drag Race and everyone's dressed in a leotard like Jennifer Lopez, yeah. I get why that's their idea of drag. But I'm very sorry to say that being a drag artist, knowing so many drag artists, you would be absolutely floored by how dull and anodyne a lot of the drag out oh, there I is. Oh, I can believe you. But like, there, <laughs> are, there are literally drag queens who are nothing more than a Cinderella persona. And, and so to me, I'm like, because I know that, because I know some of these people, yeah. that that's their kind of drag. You know, it's still entertaining in its way, but it, the, what I, the phrase I've been using is there's, there's Cinderella drag, it's not saber-tooth drag. Yeah. And so there's no real bite, there's no humor. Yeah. I think that's fine for kids at some events, but... But, the, but that's the, not what the, I'm talking about. Right. Sorry, but let me make right, this point, right? And, because yeah. what people are talking about when they're talking about stuff is videos that they see, mostly from America, I grant you, but like a half-dressed person was shaking their ass in front of three-year-olds, mm-hmm. right? That's what they're talking about. And we, you know the story, we had this uh, family sex show in Bristol, which was a show for children f- age five and onwards. One of the lines within which was, I have a penis in my pants touch it, touch it, touch it. And at some point during the show, the entire cast is encouraged to undress to the level that they're comfortable with, including full frontal nudity. Now, when the general public come across that, yes, they're gonna have a backlash, right? So that's what I'm talking, you and I have been friends for a long time. When I'm talking about that stuff, I don't mean you. 
The problem is when I know you don't mean me. Yeah. <laughs> my You've never shaken your ass in front of me. My clothes stay on until I get some coin. Do you know yeah. what I mean? <laughs> You've never shaken your ass in front of me to my great yeah. to my great regret. Yeah. But do you see what I'm saying though? Like yeah. that misperception is coming because there's a small fringe of extremists who are taking it in that direction. But the general public don't have nuance on any issue, including this well, one. Well, th that's why I think it, a valuable thing is I saw somebody, um, virtue signaling, my favorite phrase, um, about how they didn't go on the BBC to talk about this very subject because the BBC were going to give equal weight, it was a drag queen, give equal weight to the other side of the discussion and queer lives are not up for debate. And all I saw was them telling their echo chamber audience how good they were for not going and communicating with the people that might disagree. Mm. So I think that that there's a, a need in conversations like this mm. to have a not heated conversation. Yeah. Yeah. You, so when I did the interview I was doing yesterday, it was with GB News. A lot of their viewers maybe have no idea about anything to do with drag. And so I wanted to make a calm case mm. that yeah. there are, there, funny enough, there is some drag that ain't what you think it is. Yeah. And, and I think that there's most of the people I know who perform in drag would only go on that TV show to scream, you're being homophobic at us. Yeah. And maybe there is some homophobia underlying that um, concern in some people, but you're not going to convince anyone by yelling no, at them. I completely agree with you. The one thing where the problem with TV is what their, their ratings are plummeting. Their engagement is plummeting. People who watch it, there's no new people watching it. The audiences are getting ever older. So what they've done is they've gone down the clickbait model, particularly the Channel 4s, the ITVs with GMB, Good Morning Britain. And so instead of having these discussions, which are very needed, which is, are important for people, because not only do they inform people, they're also incredibly cathartic. Because you watch somebody say your opinion, and you go, okay, yeah, that, I agree with mm. that. And then there's a rebuttal, and people get to refine their points of view. But we don't really do that on television anymore. That's a very kind of 1970s model. What we do is, is two minutes, we put one mental against another nutter. <laughs> they, they, they fight it out for two minutes. They can then get some clickbait that they put on Twitter, and there's an ad break. And nobody comes out of that any better or learning anything more. Thanks, mate. I used to do quite a lot of those debates. Um, <laughs> it's funny because I know that the, the, the person... I who actually was, did as well. The person who was talking about this said that, you know, the BBC researcher was calling them wanting to, like, flesh out what that person's view was in order to... I, I suppose I know they have that thing about balance at the BBC in their charter. Um, whereas when I went on GB News, they didn't ask me what my view was at all. So they weren't trying to engineer mm. the discussion. So I think they expected that I would think one thing, but they're also quite happy for me to talk about what I actually think. Mm. Um, so, I mean, that's not heaping praise on them particularly, just saying that I think that some of the shows, Good Morning Britain and all that, the premium on the four minutes they're going to give to any subject is so high that they like to make sure they have maximal disagreement. Yes. Because that's what incentivizes them to and put it in. someone who's done that show many times, I can tell you that one of the things they deliberately do is antagonize people against each other. So they sit you in different rooms, they tell you, well, this person is going to say this and you're probably not going to like it, so what are you going to say? And then you say like well I'm actually going to be quite modern yeah but but surely there must be something that you really feel like they're trying to create the hostility and the division because that's their business model that's what I find funny I mean think about the phrase clickbait it comes from the internet it's TV that's doing the clickbait and it's people like us now who do an hour conversation with somebody where we don't misrepresent them we want to hear them out we'll challenge and push back you know like we were talking about drag story now and you push back on me and we had a conversation and yeah. we got to a better understanding of each other's position yeah. TV doesn't do that anymore it's online where you have to go for that stuff and they you know the mainstream media have a lot of responsibility uh, like the social media companies as well for a lot of the division and the bitterness and the acrimony that we have in society because they encourage this for money that is what they do that is their business model they encourage divisiveness for money the conversations that you have on your podcast are with um I mean, you have public intellectuals, you have journalists, you have people that everyone would know, um, uh, some people who are like scientists or who are, are mainstream or dissident. Is there anyone who you wouldn't interview? Like, have you got a sort of category of person um, who you're like, mm, yeah. Politicians. Politicians, really? yeah, no, yeah, serving politicians. Serving politicians, yeah. I mean, the slogan of the show is honest conversations with fascinating people. You're not really going to get an honest conversation with Boris Johnson, are you? Yeah. 
Uh, and also people who are bad faith actors. People, right. because it doesn't matter where people are on the political spectrum. It doesn't matter what people believe. You know, we've had the spokesman, we've had Nigel Farage on, and we've also had the spokesman for Jeremy Corbyn. And my dream and constant dream is for a week of trigonometry is what is Wednesday we interview Nigel and Sunday we interview Jeremy. Let people make up their own minds. We've had the co-founder of Extinction Rebellion on. What we want are people who are honest and believe what they believe and are true to it and have integrity because that's the only way you're going to have a real conversation because anything apart from that is just an empty soundbite and let's be fair, that's what TV do and that's the reason they're dying. Well, hopefully we have not been empty soundbiting here at today's episode yeah. of The Vanity Project. Um, I'm really happy that you guys took time out because I know you need to get back to London. You're going yes. back to London right away. Yeah, we're away. going back to London. Um, so genuinely so grateful for you to be here. And also for our audience, modest though they may be, I keep telling the podcast listeners that the room is full, but everyone's got a ball, ball gag on. Um, there we go. Thank you so much for joining us today. Vanity, can I just say um, uh, very, very quickly, uh, for me, if you, uh, I'm on, going on tour all over the UK, uh, come and see me. Go to my website, francisfoster.co.uk. Get your tickets. It's a stand-up tour. It's, it's very, very good. KK, the book? The book's called An Immigrant's Love Letter to the West. If you, don't, if you both don't buy I'm going to be disappointed. Yeah. <laughs> you will hurt his feelings, and he will have you cancelled. Two copies are complimentary with it, yeah. <laughs> thank you so much, and thank you, Evan, for being here. This is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win. And support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ, the official ETF of the NCAA. Invesco QQQ is proud to sponsor this episode and even prouder to provide access to innovation for the last 25 years. Basketball has had innovations over the years, too. We're seeing the game played in new ways every day. Learn more at Invesco.com slash QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince, they exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to Quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volur XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you.